You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. And now, the rest of the story. Poor Miss Sarah was what she was called by the nursery maid. The little girl never really seemed to fit in with the ideals and expectations of her wealthy social class. As far back as she could remember, she had a hunger for knowledge and a need to be heard. But a female growing up in Charleston in the early 1800s, one whose father was a wealthy judge and plantation owner, had no business learning anything but needlework, societal etiquette, and how to manage the domestic slaves in her family's grand home. Sarah would sit for hours listening to her father and brothers debate current events. She would scour over her father's books in the library, constructing her own arguments. And although her father appreciated her talent, he would not permit her to join in the debates because she was just a girl. Poor Miss Sarah would never be taken seriously. As Sarah matured, she became more and more aware of the plight of the slaves. But try as she might, her family would not relent. The servants in the household were necessary to their way of life. End of discussion. In social gatherings, Sarah was largely regarded with contempt and ignored. A young woman that was headstrong and opinionated wasn't at all attractive. It seemed poor Miss Sarah would be a spinster and be forced to live under her parents' roof forever. Surrounded by the slaves, she wished to be free, but powerless to do anything about it. As Sarah's convictions about slavery grew, she took her case to the church. First the Methodists, then the Presbyterians, but they all refused to listen and withdrew their fellowship. Eventually, she traveled to Pennsylvania and joined the Quakers. Here she had some voice, but her idea of equality between the races was way too radical. And so once again, Sarah was thrown out. She had been dis dismissed by her family, shunned by the church, and despised by society. But Sarah knew that what she had to say was important. She would not cower to ridicule. At last, Sarah decided to take her message to print. Her first pamphlet, an epistle to the clergy of the southern states, caught the eye of Elijah Wright, the secretary of the American Anti-Slavery Society, who invited her to speak to women about abolition. Well, you can imagine that this invitation was met with both excitement and dread. Would her words once again be met with disdain? But she accepted the call. And as she set foot on the stage in that majestic hall in New York, filled to overflowing, 
She opened her mouth and the words fell out with power and confidence. We won't be silent anymore. We women will declare ourselves for the slave and we won't be silent until they are free. For you see, poor Miss Sarah Grimke and her sister Angelina became the first nationally known white American female advocates for the abolition of slavery and then later in support of women's rights. And now you know the rest of the story. So much thanks to uh, Dr. Wayne uh, Paul Harvey Howard. Appreciate that. And thanks to, to Ashley as well for reading our passage from Romans. Uh, thanks to Carol and the band uh, for, for singing and leading us. Thanks for Zach for the piano prelude. Um, I think Sarah Grimke's story is the personification of what Paul was writing about in Romans when he says that we need to present ourselves as a living sacrifice not being conformed to the world, but being transformed into Christ, right? By the renewing of our minds. So she, she was that. She was that life. She's a perfect example of someone who was in a situation. She knew the love of Christ. She knew the power of the Spirit. And she looked around and things were a mess. Things were not as they should be. Yet she didn't seem to have any power. She didn't seem to have position. She didn't seem to have voice. Yet she was faithful. She was faithful in ways that she wasn't going to be changed by the world. The world was going to say, hey, slavery works. It's probably the natural order of things. But she wasn't, she wasn't changed by the world. She had been conformed to Christ or transformed into the image of Christ, not conformed to the world. I mean, a living sacrifice, that is, or for that matter, a crucified Messiah. This is one of the great oxymorons of all time, right? You know oxymoron? It's uh, two things that typically don't go together, but when they go together, they say something new. Uh, I've got plastic glasses, <laughs> J jumbo shrimp, right? Civil war. There's nothing civil about war. Uh, what are some other ones that we love? Um, Microsoft works. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't get offended. Yeah, so a, a crucified Messiah, that would have sounded ridiculous, right? That's, that's like the, the dead champion, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know much about boxing, but if one person at the end is standing up and the other person is knocked out, the, the, the person standing up is the winner, right? The person knocked out is the loser. That's how that works. If, there's a, if there is a war and, and, and one side kills all the other side, we call them the winners. Except in this story, the one who comes, comes and dies. And then Paul says, we win. <laughs> what? Crucified Messiah? Paul says this is going to sound like foolishness to the Greeks. And it's going to be a real stumbling block for the Jews, right? It's going to sound embarrassing to them. And it's going to sound ridiculous to the others. 
but we're going to preach this anyway because we believe this is how God has done things. God created this world. You know that. And this world has its troubles, its struggles, its problems. The big problem is the problem of evil. So what was God going to do about evil? Just look the other way? No. God was going to deal with evil. And the question is, how does God deal with evil? Well, God deals with the problem of evil by making a covenant with Abraham. He's like, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my, my person, and I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and from your descendants, I'm going to make a nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless the world. So God's going to deal with evil through this. But there's a problem. Abraham and his family and the nation that came from them wasn't just going to be part of the solution. They, too, were part of the problem because they, they too, were part of the, the brokenness. They were participators of the evil, per perpetrators of it as well. So what's God to do? How is God to be faithful to a covenant that he's made when the other person he's made the covenant with doesn't keep the covenant? God could have just said, too bad for you, world. I tried. But God didn't do that. God is faithful to his covenant, not only on the divine side of the covenant, in that he says, I'll be your God, but he comes in the person of Jesus and lives in such a faithful way that God now fulfills the human side of the covenant. So God's taking care on both sides. He's taking care of the God side and he's taking care of the human side because he has blessed Abraham. He's made Abraham's descendants into a nation. And through that nation, here's the revelation, the apocalypse for, for Paul, is that Christ has come. The law has produced Christ. It produced a nation. And then that nation produces Christ. And now with Christ and his faithfulness, the covenant is fulfilled. Now that's good news. Maybe, maybe your salvation is more sure than you realize. Because God started it. And God is going to finish it. The, the, the starter of our salvation is the finisher of our salvation. So what then comes to us? What are we to do? How are we to live? Well, we are to live like Christ. Presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. I love it. A living sacrifice. So we're not conformed. I wanted to read uh, George Eliot, uh, Mary Ann Evans. She was another, she was a contemporary of Sarah Grimke, but she was a novelist. And um, she wrote under the pen name George Eliot. And she wrote a lot of books, and she was kind of like Sarah. She, she had this way of, of, of kind of being an alternative in the world. And in one of her novels, uh, Middlemarch, she has this line, and it says this, For the growing good of the world, the growing good of the world, is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. They lived faithfully a hidden life 
and they rest in unvisited tombs. The world is not as bad as it might have been had there not been a bunch of people who live faithfully and you and I will never hear of them. Unless Paul Harvey, you know, would tell us about them. And I realize as I scan the room, about half of you know what I'm talking about when I say Paul Harvey and the other half don't. Uh, so let me just catch, catch those who don't up on it. So I, Paul Harvey, I grew up listening to him. He was, he was a radio personality and he would start a story and you wouldn't know what the story's about. And often at the end of the story, you realized, oh, he, I know that person. I just didn't know this backstory. And he always ended those segments with, and that's the rest of the story. So we're, we're, we're adjacent to Paul Harvey on this, but we're, we're a little different. Because Harvey often talked about famous people and the backstory you didn't know. I'm actually talking about unfamous people. Not the big historical things, Elliot says, in unhistoric acts, in things you would never hear about. A few years ago, Terrence Malick, who's like my favorite director, made a movie called A Hidden Life. And he took the phrase A Hidden Life from Elliot's uh, book, right? Uh, Those Who Rest in Unvisited Tombs. And it's a story of Franz Jägerstadter, who I imagine you don't know, <laughs> right? because it's not a name you know. So who was Franz? Franz was a farmer. He lived in a little village up in the mountains in Austria. So who's going to ever know some poor farmer living in the mountains of Austria? So why is Franz's life important? Franz, not unlike Sarah, saw the world and realized this is not the way it's supposed to be. And Germany had taken over Austria And there was an expectation that Austrian men were going to fight in the German army for Hitler. And so he had been in the military, Franz had. He had served in the Austrian military. He was, wasn't like he was unpatriotic. But when they said, it's time to serve Hitler, he said, I can't. I can't swear an oath to Hitler. And... People in his village are like, well, you should because, you know, they might come and kill us. And the mayor said, What do you, do you, do you hate your family? Do you hate your town? He goes, No. And his priest said, His priest said, Well, maybe, maybe you should just go ahead and say the words. You know, you don't have to mean them. And then you can be in the military and, and maybe not fight for Hitler, but be like a medic or be, be a cook. Right? And that way you're not helping Hitler. And he's like, where did, where did Franz get the moral courage to do something that in his small town, his neighbors, his mayor, and his priest all said, you should just get along to go along. Like this, this is the way of the world. So Franz was married, Francesca. And they had three little girls. And so he was arrested and he was put in prison. And they said, hey, if you don't, if you don't swear this oath, we're going to kill you. And he said, but I can't. And people pleaded with him, like, look, just, just say the words. Like, you, you, don't want your, you don't want your children to be fatherless. And they moved him to another prison. 
One of his, one of his co-prisoners at that second prison, prisoner was a guy named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you're familiar with him. He's kind of a famous German pastor who resisted Hitler. That he's, Bonhoeffer is the typical type of person that Paul Harvey would talk about, the famous one. But I'm interested in this George Eliot, more Sarah Grimke kind of hidden figures, the ones we don't know about, like Jägerstadter. So Jägerstadter would be put to death um, by the Germans. And the film, A Hidden Life, that came out a few years ago, was shot at the prison he was kept. And half the film is from, from the courtroom, from the actual room in which he was tried. So what does that mean for us here at Oasis in 2021 in a... Uh, late COVID, and if I could prophesy for a second, I'll say post-COVID uh, reality. I should get an amen on that post-COVID. Yeah, amen. What does that mean for us? <clears throat> Look, this isn't about getting famous. It's not about, talk to, to, to you in the way I talk to my students a little bit, it's not about how many followers you have on your social media. You don't need followers. And whatever a Facebook friend is, I'm not sure. But you do need to get face-to-face -face with some people and be their friend. You need to love them. You need to resist the ways of this world. You need to be a living sacrifice, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And let your mind be renewed in this way, to have the mind of Christ, to realize that we are the body of Christ. There's a hand, there's a foot, there's a mouth, and all of those gifts. Some are givers, and they give generously, and some are teachers, and they teach well, and some are servers, and they serve well. And we have all of these people and all of these gifts some of you can play instruments. Some of you can read beautifully. Some of you uh, serve in the tech book. Some of you cook in, in the kitchen. Some of you welcome at the door. Some of you give a lot of money. Like there's lots of things that we all do, but that makes us the body of Christ. And we need to lean into this. We need to lean into this if for no other reason that we need to lean away from the, the, the pressure the, the, of the world. The world is trying to form you into something else. It's trying to form you into just a consumer where you just consume things. You're a perpetual customer to everything and everyone. You're just a commodity for some company. It's trying to to form you into someone who's, um, who's uh, isolated and distant and afraid of the future or afraid of other people. The good news is our God created the light and the dark. Our God created heaven and the earth. There is such thing as false darkness. 
somebody telling you that this is, this is bad or this is dangerous when it's really not. And then they'll come along with some false light and they'll say, hey, let me deliver you from that. You can behave this way. But don't believe that false darkness. It's demonic. Don't believe that false light. It's satanic. This is the story we have, and it's the story we're sticking to. That Jesus came and died on a cross, and he showed us, therefore, how to live. And he showed us how to die. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, that, <clears throat> that could sound like, whew, I don't know if I want to get into all that. But listen, here's the kicker. It is the best way to live. Trust me on this one. It doesn't make sense, right? If I, give my, if I try to keep my life, I'll lose it. But if I give my life, I'll gain it. When you go to give your life, when you commit to coming here on Sundays, and those of you who also come on Wednesdays, when, when you commit to a volunteer role, when you, when you commit to, to, to giving of yourself and your talents and your gifts, you get to participate in this wonderful body of Christ. So Paul says there at the end of that chapter, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And if you have any enemies, feed them. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. C.S. Lewis, um, the famous uh, English professor and Christian author, uh, he you know, got married late in life, and his wife, whose name was Joy, was dying of cancer, and he kept praying for her, and he had a colleague who was not uh, religious and was quite dismissive of Lewis's constant prayers. Like, if you believe that your God is all good, what do you think your prayers are doing? Do you think you're going to change God? Are you going to improve God? He goes, no, I don't pray to change God. I pray so that I might be changed that I might be changed so that I can be like God. I can trust God. And that doesn't say we don't pray. He kept praying, right? He kept praying for joy's healing, right? But his prayers are prayers because we want to be like God. And who do we think God is like? God is like the one who feeds. He's like the one who gives. He's like the one who comforts. He's like the one who's fun and loving. That's the one. That's the one we're like. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.